Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Welcome to our new listeners. This is Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. I'm Jacqueline Coley, an editor at Rotten Tomatoes, where I cover independent film and awards. And I'm Mark Ellis. I'm a Rotten Tomatoes correspondent, stand-up comic, and I also appreciate the value of a cheese pizza just for me. (laughs) The height of luxury. Mm -hmm. Uh, Christmas time is here, folks, so we're talking Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. This is a beloved, by some, Christmas classic that is famously (laughs) rotten. And we're going to decide whether or not Rotten Tomatoes is wrong about the score of 33% rotten and a 61% audience score um, and decide who got it right. Um, I think the critics basically were a little sequel tired, and that's why they didn't like it. Um, Mark, I don't know. What, What are you thinking about Home Alone 2? I think Home Alone 2 is, well, we'll get into all that. We have a very special guest joining us, too. I feel like this movie is all about Uncle Rob. Even though we only see Uncle Rob on screen barely, like, in the background of one shot where he's decorating the Christmas tree, this is Uncle Rob's movie because Uncle Rob is the one that funded the trip. So in the first one, the McAllisters all want to go on vacation for Christmas, they just leave Kevin at home. Well, in Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, they all plan on going to Florida. However, Kevin gets on the wrong plane because that could happen back before TSA. And he gets on a flight to New York, and now he's walking around this huge city all by himself. He is lost. He is scared. He does have a nice room at the plaza, but who should he run into? The same two criminals from the first Home Alone movie. Luckily, there's a homeless pigeon lady there and a whole lot of bricks to throw at the bad guys. And so basically, Jacqueline, this movie, some might say a rehash of the first one. Some might say it adds some new elements, but either way, it made a boatload of cash at the box office. Yes. One thing we will agree on this uh, recording of the podcast is that this made a ton of money. Some of us will say quizzically, some of us, including our guests, will say that it should have earned more. Um, (laughs) Mark uh, and Lucy is with us as well. Lucy, can you jingle for us a little bit? Because you're wearing a great sweater. Homemade Christmas sweater. Yeah. There she is. That's really... My Christmas Do you dance. hear the sweater? That, it, contrary <laughs> to what your ears are telling you, that's not Santa's reindeer on the roof. That's actually just Lucy's Lucy. sweater. Yeah, yeah, homemade. I made this at a company holiday party because I didn't want to socialize with anyone. So I sat in a corner and hot glued jingle bells to a red <laughs> Christmas sweater. 
she's not safe. she's not just a super producer she's also crafty ladies and gentlemen and she convinced my boss to come and join us today. All right, kids, this is actually going to be an interesting one because we're going to be introducing the editor-in-chief of Rotten Tomatoes, Joel. Um, he's got a lot to say about this movie. In fact, he's written a lot about this movie already in our book, Rotten Movies We Love. Um, we have a resident Home Alone 2 expert. I'm so glad to welcome my second favorite Aussie, Joel Mears. Uh, who is your first? Is the question. <laughs> I mean, technically, it I didn't realize you, Bill Hader I... was Australian. No, <laughs> Alicia. Alicia, I knew first. I knew Alicia first. So right, she's right, like, well, uh, I mean, I do love you though. You're let, awesome. Let's not uh, let's not have an Aussie off. Um, but it's really lovely to be here, guys. Mark, Jacqueline, and Merry Christmas. Shake those jingle bells, Lucy. Uh, very excited to talk about Home Alone Two: Lost in New York. Um, I'm glad to talk about it with you, too, because, I mean, just to get it out of the way, Joel, is Rotten Tomatoes right or wrong? Well, as the editor-in-chief of Rotten Tomatoes, I can't really say that Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. I have to say that I believe the critics were somewhat harsh on this film, given that it's 33% rotten. Um, but if my bosses can mute their microphones and uh, Tim, our curation manager, can uh, close his ear holes, I will say that Rotten Tomatoes is so wrong. They are wrong <laughs> AF. Uh, wrong, 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 wrong. They've never been so wrong, uh, except for maybe Sister Act 2, which I know you guys have spoken about. But this is this is a crime. This is a crime against... This is the war on Christmas, I think. <laughs> This is great for me, Jacqueline, because uh, Joel and I may be in agreement. Anytime you can align with your boss, especially around the holiday season, that's good news. So, Jacqueline, you may be on a little bit. You may feel like you're lost in New York because Joel and I are going to be the sticky bandits and yeah. we're going to team up against Jacqueline. Hopefully she doesn't have as many paint cans at her disposal as Kevin McAllister did. Yeah, because I'm not going to lie. I'm going to get pretty violent with my takedown <laughs> of this movie. And, and it's weird, guys. I might end up getting fired by the end of this episode. So I just want y'all to know that I do this for y'all because I care about you. And I want to bring the truth, even when others would attempt to tell us falsehoods. But before we dive deep into Home Alone 2, we, of course, have to get guided along the way by our review creation manager. Mr. Tim Ryan is going to take us back to what the critics and audiences were saying about Home Alone 2. Tim, take it away. Thanks, Jacqueline. So one of the issues of Home Alone 2 is the issue that a lot of critics have with sequels, which is how do you do the same thing but kind of different? And in general, they were not super pleased with the result. Taking it out of one venue and putting it into another didn't really work for everybody. It's at 33% on the tomato meter with 54 reviews, and it's got a 61% audience score, which actually seems a little low to me given what a perennial holiday favorite this is among some people, but what did the critics have to say? In a rotten review, Janet Maslin of the New York Times wrote, it's much more violent than the first film's comparable set of dirty tricks. And Kevin, removed from his embattled home, seems much more cavalier, probably even meaner than his bullying older brother, Buzz. However, in a fresh review, Dwayne Burge of The Hollywood Reporter wrote, Culkin is breezily winning once again as the self-reliant kid alone, while Pesci and Stern deserve combat medals, especially Stern, to the bricks and slings they endure. And getting to the bricks thing, I will say that when a brick hit Daniel Stern's head a couple times, and I heard that sound, it kind of took me out of it a little bit. It just seemed kind of sadistic? I don't know. Anyway, the Rotten Tomatoes critics' consensus is... A change of venue and more sentimentality and violence can't obscure the fact that Home Alone 2 Lost in New York is a less inspired facsimile of its predecessor. 
Anyway, so that's Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. And I think, are we going to do Home Alone 3 at some point, Lucy? No? She's shaking her head. That looks like a big no. So back to you, Jacqueline. Listen, (laughs) they don't like sequels. They don't like sequels. And if you bore critics with a sequel, they're going to make you feel it. Hangover 2. There's a litany of them. Can we not compare this film to The Hangover 2? I mean, that's wrong. Mm, That's wrong. Jacqueline Coley is wrong. Hey, sorry to give you a little preview, Joel, but I'm about to. <laughs> You're going to go there. There may, be. there may be some correlations between Home Alone 2 and Hangover 2 in that there are we're in a new city and we're actually dealing with face tattoos. Now, one was put there by a brick. One was put there by a this tattoo artist. But either way, there's facial markings. And what's so funny about the critics' response to this movie to me is that not only did they hate it because it was a sequel, it seemed like they also were very against the, the sudden class warfare that you see with this upper class kid going against these poor middle class working class crooks who just got out of prison so it's like we're actually are we supposed to be rooting for the sticky bandits in this movie i'm uh, confused i have some I thoughts mean, about about that i don't know if we're going to get into it because i i want to talk about good things i'm so excited to okay, no, no, we'll, we'll <laughs> I, I got with. thoughts about the class warfare stuff because we do not know their background they could be rich they could be filthy rich we don't know that but we can go we can go there with that coat girl <laughs> No, not with that coat. No. Uh, Wait a minute, though. Joel, so let's start with the good. Let's start with the good. What's on Santa's uh, you were good list, not the naughty list. Why do you love this movie so much? Because your love for it, it's it's not baffling, but I was so surprised to know how much love you have for this movie. This is the hill that I I will die on. Um, There's obviously the nostalgia factor. This was actually the first film I saw at theaters, um, or as we say back home, cinema, uh, with my with my family, and we didn't really do that. So that certainly ingrained the experience to me. But it's not just a nostalgia factor. I think I could talk for days about how well made and well written this movie is, really, (laughs) and particularly about how well acted. Um, But I think the thing that I love about Home Alone Two is, and rewatching it, I think it really sticks, is that it's kind of the ultimate wish fulfillment fantasy for a young person and even a something person. Um, You know, the first film is great, uh, but what can you really do at your home when you're alone, aside from amuse amuse yourselves by sort of punishing criminals should they show up on your doorstep? I mean, he has a nice home, but it's not as exciting as dot, 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 New York City. And I feel like they really, really up the ante of showing you all the possibilities that a kid could get up to in the most exciting, fun, potentially dangerous, bustling city on earth. And that really spoke to me. It was just this uh, incredible playground for him. And they really fulfilled that promise, giving us toy stores and ice cream and expensive hotels and Donald Trump and everything you could possibly want. Um, but I think that the scene that really captures it for me is um, there's a montage early on in the film and it ends with Kevin at the top of one of the World Trade Centers, uh, the former Standing World Trade Centers, looking out over the city. And it's kind of a king of the world moment. And he's looking down on this city and soaking it up. And it's like, this is what I'm going to go out and take advantage of. And the movie absolutely delivers on that. So I, I, I love it. That's the central appeal for me. I mean, I will give it to you on the Wish Kid <laughs> fulfillment. And I don't want to poo-poo on the shots. You're right. It is actually shot gorgeous. Chris Columbus knows how to frame a shot. I'm not in any way going to say that. Um, John Williams knows how to score a movie. And, um, yes, he does. Jo- John Hughes definitely knows how to write them. 
Uh, so you're basically saying it's a beautifully scored, no, uh, directed, and no, written no, film. This was no, an easy episode no, for us to no. all agree. Roll we credits, call it roll a day. credits. I, I recommend some binge watches now, and we can go. <laughs> it's it's like watching a bit like watching like late seasons of a sitcom where you feel like they're recycling the jokes, though. Like it's nice. But I'm bored. I was just oh bored. my god! Is this the Thanksgiving Friends episode that just kept happening year after year for you, Jacqueline? I have love for the Thanksgiving Friends episodes. Those are the only episodes of Friends that I've actually watched because I have a thing about playing Thanksgiving episodes on Thanksgiving. So I know every Thanksgiving episode of every major television show. I'm not kidding. We can actually. We should have done a Thanksgiving episode where we break down like the rotten Thanksgiving episodes, but we didn't do that. Anyway, Mark, what about you? I'm guessing you're more lukewarm, but warm. I'm going to add on to Joel's point with the celebration of a kid in New York, because New York is great for a movie setting anyway, with all of the trappings. But New York at Christmas time is something special. And I've gotten to experience it firsthand, even though I live in L.A. And like I go to New York for like three days. doesn't matter, summer, winter, Christmas season, whatever. And I want to leave because I'm done with New York. But those three days are magical. And that's what Kevin McAllister gets to experience. So for me in particular, this kid travels the way that I always thought I'd be traveling in the way that I dreamed of traveling because my family moved around a lot. And we were staying at like Holiday Inns and Air Force bases and stuff <laughs> like that. This kid goes to New York and he manages to stay at the plaza hotel and he's just in the lap of luxury he's got the bathrobe he's got the big tv he's got all the mini bar open and he's just doing what every kid it's that wish fulfillment that joel was talking about and the hotel is not only great for that reason it's also great because it's a showcase for the side characters that we did not get in home alone one we get rob schneider we get tim curry the legend Tim Curry as these baffled hotel clerks that are warring a little bit with each other, a little bit with the McAllisters. They're trying to figure out what's going on. And so it's just such a great subplot to be following is what is going on with the management at the Plaza Hotel as much as it is, is Kevin's family going to find him? We'd like to offer you a complimentary suite while you're here. It's a penthouse with a view of the park. I think you'll find it satisfactory. It was recently vacated by the Countess of Worcestershire. What kind of hotel allows a child to check in alone? The boy had a very convincing story. What kind of idiots do you have working here? The finest in New York. Well, I mean, when you discovered that the credit card was stolen, what? I made the discovery. Why did you let him leave? When we attempted to confront him, he ran. You scared him away. It's Christmas Eve, and because of you, our child is lost in one of the biggest cities in the world. I'm not going to lie to you. That is actually one of the things that I could not wrap my head around. I know that I shouldn't, especially with a kid's movie where people can get pummeled to death and still live, try to like, you need to suspend disbelief a little bit. But why does the hotel care about this child? There is likely prostitution, adultery, and drug deals going on in that hotel any given day. But the eight-year-old who happens to have a credit card, we are all up in it. Oh, well, no. hotels, I think the thing is those those three hotels things. <laughs> look don't say anything. Like you will ignore the fact that that dude checked in yesterday with his wife, and he's checking in tonight with his yeah, mistress. Yeah, but that, that, hotel that's, people—that's what makes the hotel money. Those first three categories are its livelihood, a potential, uh, a potential, an eight-year-old with a credit card that could potentially be fraudulent or you know not go through. That's why they're worried about it. They're worried about the money. They got their eye on the money. And I have to say, the casting 
you know, what, what Mark said about these side characters, Tim Curry, uh, Rob Schneider. But then there's uh, Dana Ivey, I believe it is, mm-hmm. who has, I don't even know if she even speaks in this film, but just her, her facial expressions and the moment where he sort of slides under her legs is just a great bit of physical comedy. She's like the standout to me among that cast, just sort of owning every little scene. I, I think that, and the sequences in the hotel are something that we don't really get to get a too much of a sense of uh, in the first film we get the pizza guy right and here and he's kind of he's kind of bland right uh, and here they really up the ante by giving us these great character actors and the sequence um, the, the 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 even filthier angels sequence with the the talk boy is 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 incredibly done here I know it's the same thing I know Jacqueline one of your points is that it's repetitive right it's kind of we're hitting all the same beats but I think what's really great about the film is that it does hit the same beats that sort of tapped out pleasure centers the first time. And it actually ups them. And I think it makes them better, to be honest. I think it expands upon them. Hold it right there. This is the concierge, sir. I knew it was you. I could smell you getting off the elevator. You was here last night, too, wasn't you? Yes, sir. (laughs) I was. You was here. And you were smooching with my brother. I'm afraid you're mistaken, sir. Don't give me that. You've been spooching with everybody. Snuffy, Al, Leo, little Mo with the gimpy leg, Cheeks, Bony Bob, Cliff. <gasps> it's a lie. I could go on forever, baby. I would agree with you that, I mean, there's things about it that are great. This is the problem, is it just feels like copy my work, don't make it look the same on either the first movie or It's a Wonderful Life. Like, it just feels like like Chris Columbus is trying his earnest to be Frank Capra and it just isn't there. It feels like a cheap recreation and it's too saccharine. I'm too cynical. You saw this before you became the cynical person I've come to appreciate. And so maybe that's why you're able to dismiss all of this. I rewatched it last week and cried my eyes out and was moved. And That's the other thing. That's the other thing mm. about both one and two is that they have these weird tugs at the heartstrings that you do not expect. And the first one it's when Kevin goes to church on Christmas Eve before mm. he's about to have this showdown with the crooks and here Kevin interacting with the pigeon lady who takes the place of the old weird neighbor in the first one there's just something about it when Kevin is meeting her and then he sees what her living quarters are like or they sneak up into the opera house and they're looking down upon the performance and it's just this really cool sequence of heartfelt nostalgia of emotion you remember how it felt to be a kid at christmas and wishing something and hoping it could come true and i do think this movie was not only great for me when i saw it and i was a kid i think it does hold up as a valuable christmas movie for people to enjoy now the the downside to it jacqueline is that violence you were talking about that would have killed someone i'm not a parent knock on wood i don't ever intend to be that is something that I would have to rectify because I'm not going to pin Mortal Kombat on violence and I really don't want to do this, but this is a kid who's pretty much killing two people by the end of the yeah. movie. Yeah, I mean, look, it's um, <laughs> it's one of the things that the critics kind of centered in on when, when Tim was talking about is just like the violence upping of the ante. Actually, something I didn't hate, if I'm going to go ahead and talk about it, I won't get into the <laughs> class warfare thing, but like, you know, hitting people is funny. That's why they do it. So do more. Especially when it's, it's Daniel funny. Stern. When it's Daniel <laughs> Stern's facial reaction to getting hit by a brick, you're like, okay, throw one more brick at him. We love Daniel Stern. 
I mean, both him and Pesci for like an absurd role, they really do give it their all. And you can see that they're earnest in these portrayals and they're not cartoon like, even though the like hits are cartoon like. They're the really the wet bandits. I used to think those dudes were scary. I had seen Joe Pesci in Casino and the God uh, Goodfellas prior to this. So I was ready for him to start murdering people any minute in that <laughs> uh, movie. <laughs> this is the thing. They try to. They like yeah. they actually <laughs> yeah. everyone talks about like was Kevin McAllister too cruel to these people? They were just these working class guys trying to make their money. I'm like, no, they came to New York, they saw him, and then they tried to dump him in the river, right? Yeah. And they sort of like and he got away. I'm like, they deserve what come to them in, as far as I'm concerned. Call me call me whatever you want to call me. But I mean, should we get into that that brownstone sequence and talk about the violence? Because I freaking yeah. love it. Like I'm like up <laughs> well, that ante, man. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's go. We we did the good. Let's go to okay. the bad, and let's break down. Short. Yes, <laughs> listen. <laughs> I'm just agreeing with y'all's good. I'm not trying to like go into an effusive on the things that I like. I'm like, yeah, that was fine. But this is where I'm gonna go ahead and mm-hmm. pr- break it down for you. There are so many problems. First of all, I just want to put it out. John Hughes has a problem with the French. I remember this. I watched the first one last week, and then I watched this one. There. Are, Tons of jokes making fun of French people. In the first one, there's an, the, all the French sequences talking about Jerry Lewis. They're basically like, French people are stupid for liking Jerry Lewis, and y'all are all weird, and I hate you. And then Kevin, on the plane, has some weird French dude who keeps talking French to him, even though he clearly doesn't understand him. I'm like, why does John Hughes hate the French? That's just an aside, but I didn't like it. <laughs> okay, also, I'm convinced it's a terrible film. No. Uh, you've you've also, won me over. <laughs> no. Also, the parents. The parents, like, they don't make any sense i love i love Catherine o'hara i'm not trying to say anything against it they crack jokes when their child is literally lost anywhere they're sitting in front of the police officer talking about how we never lose our luggage lock these people up lock them up they're lock them up. they should not have children from crying it's, yes. it's a coping mechanism that a lot of people will attribute to some sort of past trauma that they've suffered i've read studies on this jacqueline and when i say read studies i mean i've watched youtube videos on the fact that sometimes <laughs> people will just start laughing because that's the only option it's the only thing that their body can do to mm-hmm. deal with whatever is going on in their lives and the way that Catherine o'hara does it much in the same way that joel was talking about the looney tunes aspect of the sticky bandits you get that with Catherine o'hara more so than john hurd who's kind of more the anchor than Catherine o'hara can be the kevin and (laughs) i think that they work brilliantly together and i actually like seeing the family in florida because it's like everybody thinks of this great vacation that they're going to be going on and it's rainy in florida and it's well they don't have any money because apparently the husband is the only one that has access to their funds that's another thing that's stupid that doesn't make any sense why doesn't the wife have access to any of the money and they're clearly rich because if all the money they had fit in his little man purse, they can't uh, have that house I think or that thing, vacation. The thing that I always struck me about the family being rich was that they always have all of the lights on in the house. Have yes. you noticed that every exterior shot of that house, every single light is on, including the Christmas lights? But that's a, that's a separate point. I think this movie is really, both movies are really easy to pick apart from a logic level, right? From a, there's only one alarm in the house. Why is that? No one else set the alarm. The parents, are they rich enough? And there's been a lot of analysis. Uh, we can go into Hoffman's research as well. What about the abandoned well. house? Yeah, the Why abandoned house. Why is there house? full tools in an I mean, abandoned house? Because it's being paint? renovated and clearly that's uh, that's. And they leave and the just, tools in New York do, with yeah. homeless people? It's the Upper West Side. It's pretty fancy. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, what I'm trying to say is like, 
this is not the film you do that in, right? You have to accept going into it what the premise is. They have to get to the meat of the story to get him to New York. There has to be sort of jumps in logic. And I don't think, you know, I was talking about this the other day to someone and saying, if I'm watching a uh, Christopher Nolan movie and the puzzle pieces don't fit, I get upset. If I'm watching a Home Alone movie and I can poke holes in the logic, so what? Who cares? There's a Christmas tree. I'm happy. Like there's bricks being thrown. I I don't understand this sort of criticism of the film that because uh, there are inconsistencies in the logic or the parents do something that is actually required to happen for the entire plot to happen, that we dismiss the film or can't sit there and, 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 and enjoy it as a whole meal. The second time around, Joel, you yeah, got to make the that first money. time. No, the <laughs> first time I believed, okay, there's a lost white child and the entire world doesn't shut down to go find him. I will suspend that disbelief because let's be honest, that's exactly what would happen. There'd be like newspapers and Catherine O'Hara would be sitting there with a picture of Kevin saying, find my son. Like, that's how that goes. But to do it again, I can't I can't do it. Like how many it's like the second season of 24. How many bad days can this dude have? Like I can't. The first season of 24, I was about it. The second season, I was like, come on. So but then you're saying you're like, your issue is the whole concept of a sequel, right? So this film no, shouldn't exist. No, my issue is the conflicts with a sequel where they don't change anything, where they don't add anything, where there's nothing. They take new. the kid and they they move him to an entirely different location. And <laughs> and I just think about when I was a kid, like if I got left by my family, which I'm sure they tried to do on many of our movies, <laughs> is I, I would just retreat to my comfort zone, which is my own house. At least I can do that. But mm-hmm. when you're lost in New I've been lost in New York as an adult, and it's scary. And so this is a completely different scenario where, yes, Kevin tries to set it up as much like he can as his own house. And that's what we see in the plaza. And that's what we see when he eventually makes it to Uncle Rob's brownstone. And he says, oh, okay, I can do this and this and this with these tools. But to see him do that, you're watching a kid mature before your eyes. And I think we needed to have the first Home Alone because we saw how savvy he was in in being able to outsmart the wet bandits. And so we give him a little bit more credibility. We can get a little more cartoony or far-fetched with it because we've seen the body of work from the first one. And so I think that that this was a valuable sequel in the fact that we needed that first movie to buy any of the stuff that we're watching in Home Alone 2. And there is just this weird thing about a movie, whether it hits the right tinge of nostalgia or it gets you in an emotional soft spot where you're able to forgive the holes in logic. Like what Joel was saying, where a Christopher Nolan movie, it may not be trying to remind <laughs> you of how it felt when you were a kid at Christmas. And so you're going to be more judgy with the logic. It's like a time travel movie. You're having so much fun watching Back to the Future that you don't really put a lot into the science of why would a DeLorean need to do all these things? How does the flux capacitor work? You're just having a good time. And by the way, perfect example, Back to the Future both of them in the bones have a lot of similarities. Two very different movies. Two very so, different, three very different movies. If you look at it. Wait, <laughs> all I will say with this is it's the reason why I can't say the movie is fresh. It does not mean that the movie is wholly without merit. I agree that the critics were too harsh on it with the 33%. In that respect, Rotten Tomatoes is wrong-ish. But this is a rotten movie just for originality. Be original. I, no, Move I said, me. Well, I was moved and felt it was original. Uh, So, um, my soul is dead. I think the thing, what I want to say is that yes, there's a lot of story beats. And look, the the airport scene, 
is, is very similar. Um, though it's O'Hare, that's that's a place where that can happen multiple times, trust me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the thing I think is that what Mark's pointed out earlier is that a lot of the same beats they hit on, they expand upon. Like the being at home alone becomes the hotel, add the side characters. And I actually think the pigeon lady, who's played by Brenda Frecker, Fricker, uh, Academy Award winner from one or two years before, for my left foot, uh, and who resides in Central Park and has a relationship with pigeons and who scares Kevin when he first sees her and then they eventually form a bond and he learns something from her, is obviously a mirror or meant to hit the same beats as the old man down the road or the neighbor. But it's actually quite a different lesson that he learns as well within that context. And she's her own, to my eyes, quite fleshed out character. And I, the other scene I love in this film, again, it's a little bit Capra, it's a little bit sentimental, is when they're at Carnegie Hall and they're in the rafters, they watch the the music and then they have this conversation. And she talks to him about people like herself becoming invisible in a city like New York and getting ignored every day, which is actually quite a different phenomenon from the scary guy down the street in the suburbs that we get introduced to in the first one. And that was a real interesting lesson for me, you know, just as a kid being like, oh, okay. And she talks about how she actually became homeless. And that was fascinating because for young people of Kevin's age, you walk down a street and you see these, these, you know, unfortunate people um, asking for money or in really uh, desperate situations, but you don't really understand that there's a backstory there. And I really appreciated watching it as an adult, what that would have done for me as a child and for other kids watching. And I thought it was a really mature expansion of that idea. I wasn't always like this, you know. Oh, what were you like before? I had a job. I had a home. I had a family. Did you have any kids? No. Oh, I wanted them. But the man I loved fell out of love with me. That broke my heart. And whenever the chance to be loved came along again, I ran away from it. I stopped trusting people. No offense. That seems like sort of a dumb thing to do. I was afraid of getting my heart broken again. So... I think that, yes, it's a facsimile, but like they color in a little bit some of the stuff I mean, and expand yeah, the Get emotional, more, Jacqueline. Joel's working his magic on me. in the painting, but the painting looks the same. It's the same painting. And I can't, I have a hard time. It is one of the things that I think a lot of critics, maybe when they think about it, if I know it on board, yes, there were moments that I was compelled. Yes, there were moments that I thought were interesting. And yes, there's even moments that got me a little misty. The pigeon lady, I, I'm i not as cold as I put myself out to be. It just wasn't enough for me to be like, yay. It just isn't. Like watching the first one would have done all of these things for me. And I would have been just as happy. But isn't granted, that the- uh, I granted Tim Curry, I will say this, any movie with Tim Curry, infinitely better. Here's here's the thing, though. You're talking about the similarities and the first one giving you feelings that you got in the second one that makes it almost redundant. But isn't that almost the entire point of a sequel like this? To give you those familiar feelings that you got from the first film, to tap in what you loved about it, and then to add Tim Curry? Like, I I don't don't get it. I'm (laughs) sort of like, we're on the the certified fresh end now. We're, that's a certain type of sequel. And and you didn't like it earlier, but that is literally what happened with The Hangover. 
And the only difference is that was prostitutes in Bangkok and this is a little boy in New York. So and, they were able to right. even less forgive it because there wasn't this like emotional attachment. It's the Christmas blanket that we're about to realize happens with the next movies that we're covering over this, the next <laughs> Christmas movie. It's the Christmas blanket. You curl up in it and you forget yeah. that this is actually a trash movie. Same there thing is, with Christmas albums. It's all the same. Th- there is similarity with this and Hangover 2. The big difference being Hangover 2 from a script standpoint or from a storyline standpoint, very similar to what we're doing with Home Alone 2, how we have some familiar beats, we have some new movement. It was made, it was a sequel made in a very short amount of time from the first one. Mm -hmm. But Hangover 2 simply wasn't funny. And that was the goal of it. It just, the the Uh, jokes didn't work. And here, you you can say what you want about the redundancy, but it it, it still works. They still pull it off, I think, a lot better than Hangover 2 did. And what Hangover 2 didn't have is that element of childhood wonder that I don't know if it would work in a 2020 movie is when we go to Duncan's toy shop. And poor Duncan, let's face it, that guy's out of business by the year 2000, okay? Kids are no longer caring (laughs) about, oh yeah, let me have a free ornament. They're they're looking at their phones and they're playing video games. And and Duncan is not going deep into the Sega Dreamcast world in at the new millennium. He, well, he's not quite, selling Xboxes. Quite literally, just, uh, you know, I, I live in this city and uh, watched over the last few years as the massive Toys R Us in Times Square. That was that kind of experience. And FAO Schwartz both closed yeah. down. And this mm. was pre-pandemic. So you're, mm. I think I think Duncan's is based on FAO Schwartz and uh, literally closed down for all of the reasons you just stated. So prescient, prescient work, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> it is. I, I, I had a an argument that I lost with one of my friends because I thought it was filmed at FAO Schwartz. And it turns out that it, the movie was shot primarily in Chicago and that there's mm. a store in Chicago that is actually that toy store. And so it's kind of it looks like that. But just as a kid, I never forget walking into Toys R Us and what that smelled like. It smelled like new. It smelled mm. like hope. It smelled like opportunity. And walking into Duncan's toy shop in this movie, it, it's almost like I could smell that in the theater. Yeah. And I think, hey, look, and I'm glad that they gave us that beautiful miracle on 34th Street. Christmas moment. Again, he's just, he wants to be Capra so bad. Anyway, listen, (laughs) listen. But it's like, again, they need to do that before they basically start murdering people in the brownstone scene right after that. Something for everyone. Which I will say, this is what the movie works for me. The movie works at the beginning until we get to him at the plaza and the kids wish fulfillment. And then at the end, when he beats the crap out of the burglars. Everything in between, I could have fast forwarded through. Sorry. But those two things were so cool. So you were into brownstone violent finale oh, situation. Yeah. Hitting Love people it. is funny. Hitting people is funny. It never is not funny. Hitting people, boom, funny. I'm a simple person. I will always laugh. America's funniest home videos. That's what it is. I'm a child of America's. Are you a Jackass fan as well? I did. I did like jackass too. Hitting people is funny, especially when they sign up for it. You're like, oh yes, hit them. When they sign up for it, it's fine. What I have to do with Home Alone 2 in particular, what I have to do is remind myself that when we meet the now sticky bandits, the first scene is them walking up from the, uh, or they're they're sneaking out of the fish truck, excuse me. Mm -hmm. And now they're in New York and they're walking around, they're doing the subway. And then to see the sticky bandits in action where they're stealing coins from the Salvation Army, you have to remember that they did that early in the movie so that it's okay when they're falling down 
holes in floors in non-finished brownstones because we add new tricks to this and Kevin is even more cruel than he was. He had them tripping on micro machines and being scared by tarantulas in the first one. In the second one, he's like, hey, remember the paint cans? And they're like, ah, we're too smart for this. Then he throws a goddamn iron at them both and just knocks them silly and it's like they're dead. You just killed two people, kid. Good luck with the rest of your life. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I mean, there's a video that Macaulay Culkin does in which he parodies what he would be as an adult. And if, for those of you that don't know, Macaulay Culkin has grown up into... I would say an interesting looking fellow because you still see like the kid like aspect of him, but he's clearly had a few years of partying. So he's got like long hair and he's smoking a cigarette. Basically, this Uber driver picks him up and he tells the story of the two movies. He's like, you want to talk about my mom? She left me over Christmas. <laughs> and he's like literally like an old like whatever. But it's true because honestly, Kevin grown up sociopath, absolutely a sociopath, possibly a serial killer with toes in his basement. Or... A Silicon Valley, uh, you know, <laughs> oh, true. success story. He's very I mean, inventive. I mean, but those people are usually and called. <laughs> kidding, 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 kidding. No. Um, but hey, look, I, I am, uh, I do enjoy it. I'm not going to say that it has no merit. And I really do wish they would make a Home Alone 3 that is just about Kevin McAllister as an adult and how damaged he is. Do you think we get that? Do you think we get that at some point? Because we were talking a few weeks ago, Jack, what about how eventually there is going to be an adult Harry Potter movie and people are going to yeah. lose their minds for yeah. it. Do we eventually get Kevin McAllister as the father figure? Maybe he's the uncle and Buzz has all the kids. Maybe Fuller has all the kids. They're both great in this movie, by the way. I, mean, I have an, I have an idea that harkens back to our hangover discussion. We get Todd Phillips to jokerize the Kevin McAllister. Stop it. And we Stop get it. we Stop get it. the situation. It gets dark. We're, there's staircases, dancing, falling. It's going to be amazing. Um, I, I lo- I, I'm with you, Jacqueline and Mark. I know you found the violence a bit much in that brownstone sequence, but I, did. I was all I about did. it. And I found what I think many people think is the most violent uh, bit of it, which is the bricks from the top of the brownstone. This is when Marv and Harry are downstairs looking up and for some reason decide not to move, um, while Kevin is upstairs just pegging bricks from the top. Yeah. And and uh, Harry looking up and Marv is behind him and just gets smacked, then the way that shot is framed with Daniel Stern sort of 
in the background, like a horror film, and slowly getting up again. And then the next brick comes down. And the critics actually, I think there was, I think it was in Tim's segment where they spoke about the the yeah. bone crush that you hear when those bricks land. And I'm all about it. I was like, yes, this is what I want. <laughs> and Daniel Stern, we spoke about their performances, his reactions to everything in that final sequence is just gold. Like he, yeah. you could not, I can't imagine another actor quite doing maybe maybe Jim Carrey or something like that, but really going for it in that cartoonish way and landing. And I I love that brick sequence. I, it could have gone on for 10 minutes, honestly. You really have two unsung heroes of comedy in film really in the last 30 <laughs> years with, with Tim Curry and Daniel Stern. Most people know who they are by they'll recognize them. They see them in a role. They, they, they've heard the names before, but mm-hmm. my God, Tim Curry's a marvel. And Daniel mm. Stern, you watch him in anything. You watch him in Rookie of the Year, and he his physical comedy is fantastic. I mean, he really is a lot more than just the narrator from The Wonder Years, which he is, kids. He was the narrator in the Wonder Years. What about Bushwhacked? You. Can we talk? Can we should have a, we should have a podcast about Bushwhacked. Um. Oh, my. oh, Bushwhacked is a movie I would talk about. Also, Lightning Jack. I would defend Lightning Jack, which I, is hey, starring everyone's favorite Australian, Paul Hogan. Yeah, Paul Hogan. Where's your taxes, buddy? Um, but we should. Oh. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, the one thing I love about Tim Curry in this movie, and it's so perfect, is that shot where it dissol- does it dissolve from him into the Grinch or is the Grinch mm-hmm. dissolved yeah, into him? Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's yeah, so yeah. perfect. And I feel like yeah. we were robbed of the opportunity to have Tim Tim Curry Tim as Curry the Grinch in some incarnation. Yeah. would have been phenomenal. I mean, uh, not to, you know, talk out of turn, but, you know, we might be talking about a Grinch movie coming up soon. And I, I, I just, I don't want to Trash, Rotten Tomatoes is right. <laughs> See, this is where we reverse because I love that movie. Like, we are going to be completely the opposite on that one. Look, that kind of breaks down what we kind of liked, maybe didn't like about it. But there was a lot of conversation about this movie on the outside within, as we say, the industry folks. So for a movie that's just a kid, you know, beating up on robbers, there was a lot of like Hollywood stuff going on with this movie, like behind the scenes, both from like who they got involved in it to like John Williams rewriting the script like eight times and like all John Hughes of- rewriting the script because John, John Williams well, wrote the score. Yeah, yeah, John Williams doing the score, John Hughes doing the script and rewriting it like several times. Me personally, I just want to add this one fun fact because there was like a whole thing in Canada where they wanted to remove the cameo that's in this movie and like there was like a whole thing about it. The only thing I will say <laughs> is there needs to be a movie on, there's actually a rule with that particular uh, hotel organization that if you film at one of their properties, you have to put the president of that particular organization in the film. Literally every film that has been filmed by one of the things that Trump owned, you had to put him in the film. It was literally in the writer. All the films did it. Home Alone is one of the few ones that kept it. And I want to know why they were the ones that kept it because everybody else filmed it and then cut it out. I know why. I know why, because uh, Mark Harfmeyer, our, our expert researcher, yeah. said that they screened the movie with that cameo in there and the audience cheered when it was Trump who was showing him where the bathroom is or whatever. And, and and I remember seeing that movie opening weekend, I think it was Thanksgiving of 92, with my cousins and, and it was a packed theater. And when Trump showed up, sure enough, and I felt like a kid who was smart. I felt smart for knowing who Donald Trump was, so it made me feel good. But everybody in the theater laughed. And so because they got that reaction at test screenings, they kept the scene in the movie. And it, to its credit, it did work well in the movie for that time. 
mm-hmm. works as a cameo for 1992. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's for 1992. Good for that. Um, and now there's petitions in Canada about removing it. But that's another thing. Uh, another thing on the inside industry thing that I think is really interesting is this is sort of like watching old school Jackson 5 performances where you're like, oh my God, this kid is amazing and he's so good. But now we know Macaulay Culkin has talked about like this movie in particular, like how rough it was for him because of his abusive family and the fact that they wanted to steal all his money. Yeah, the Macaulay Culkin story is really uh, interesting and tragic. And But I think what's great about the Macaulay Culkin thing is how he's come out of it, right? So we've seen in the last few years with those videos that you've spoken about where he's able to poke fun at himself. I think he's even getting some acting work. I think he has a podcast. Um, and he's really, it seems like he's in a really healthy, interesting and introspective introspective spot, right? Um, and it, he was the richest kid at the time. But he was, this, he was, yeah. he got 4.5 million for doing this role uh, in the sequel, which made him the highest paid kid actor ever and he earns it like how good is Macaulay Culkin mm-hmm. oh no film? I will give you that the the movie does not work unless you have that innocent look in the child's eyes when he stares at the Christmas tree in wonderment um, and then for him to take that innocent child's eyes and be a sadistic murderous person that's even better with the juxtaposition um, I just want to also add that I don't know how much money Macaulay Culkin ended up with after his parents, you know, did all the things that a they bunch. did. <laughs> but he got that Google Home money with that recent right. Google Home ad. And listen, th- that's some checks. Macaulay's doing all right. Checks. You're getting a <laughs> lot of residuals for that. And to see the leap that he made as an actor from the first movie, where he's good in the first movie, but mm. he's able to put the entire Home Alone 2 film on his back when necessary. Even though yeah. we get a lot of great side performances, him as the lead actually helps those side performances stand out more because yeah. you're so focused on Kevin in this. And when somebody else does show up, they have to bring their A game because Kevin is worthy of the attention the entire time. And to see him from Home Alone 1 to Home Alone 2, it was like for all you sports fans out there, it was like Lamar Jackson's rookie year and then his MVP season. Like there was a lot of offseason film study that went in between Home Alone 1 and 2. And it shows in the movie performance. One of those films was uh, My Girl, uh, which came out between these two films and Oh my gosh. I can't even talk about it. I can't even talk about it. That movie destroyed me. I told my mom I want to be tested for everything. I thought that I was allergic to things. And I was (laughs) like, I don't want to die because of a bee. Because we didn't have bees like that in Corpus. We had mosquitoes and like mesquite trees. But like, I was afraid that like the minute I got near bees, I was going to die. Also, um, anybody spot the two cameos if you're paying attention? of actors that went on to do other things and other features. And I'm not talking about Warren Steiner and Tim Curry. I'm talking about the two kid actors who went on to do greater things later. Did anyone spot them? I did not, but... I'm going to well, go, okay, Mark? well, one of them is his brother, right? Yes. Oh, are they? And do we consider the, the Culkin kid a cameo? He's in Succession. He is the oh, yeah. Emmy-nominated and, and Buzz, actor. Buzz was in Hustlers, right? Yes, um, this is true. Mm. This is true. Uh, what is it? Um, also Pete, the adventures of Pete and Pete. We have mm-hmm. one of the Pete's that plays yep. a family. The member. older Pete. Yeah. The older, the older Pete, Pete yep. is in there. And so he's like behind Kevin when they're doing the candle scene where Kevin is doing All his right. solo and Buzz is being a complete jerk. He's literally right to the left of him. Uh, and I was like, there's Pete from Pete and Pete. 
I ah. you, the other film he did after this was one of my favorites, is The Good Son, which I think just yes. shows he has range because he and, totally and he went full that evil. Movie. People hated that movie because of that. They didn't want to see the innocent kid be murderous, and I was all there. Well, for he was it. already. I mean, that's what he'd been doing for the last two films. So I don't know what they, where they were. <laughs> Seriously, but I think it was also Elijah Wood was like coming up as like the new cuter kid. Yeah, not so, so they much. were able to be like, "Bye, bye, Macaulay. We got our new angel-eyed." <laughs> I had to look this up. So the Good Son is twenty six percent on the tomato meter, fifty four percent audience score, but it does have an enduring legacy where you can still, if you have a tough decision to make, you can tell anyone on the street, yeah, it's a really, it's a Good Son situation, and people instantly <laughs> get what you're talking about. If you haven't seen the movie, there's a Good Son situation in it. It's like a Sophie's end. Choice kind of thing. I have never gone under an underpass the same way again without looking <laughs> to see if Macaulay Culkin is up there about to throw something onto my windscreen. Um, hey, how are you going to put the Home Alone kid in a movie like that and not have him throw at least one thing from a elevated position down to street level? Oh, my goodness. It is Home Alone 3. It is the Todd Phillips Home Alone 3. Um, We already have a Home Alone 3, actually, that was straight to DVD with a kid who I don't know his name, but he had a bowl cut. And we actually have a and we have a Home Alone reboot coming with for those of you that saw the Oscar winning film by Taiko Atiti from two years ago, uh, Jojo Rabbit. There's two kids in that one. The first one is Rowan Griffith Davis and the second one is Archie Yates. And he is going to play the Kevin McAllister character. And I can tell you from doing some interviews with that cast that kid he doesn't need to act like that's that kid that kid is the most entertaining seven-year-old i've ever seen in my entire life we i will tell this one quick story there's a sag interview that i did with the entire cast of jojo rabbit scarlett johansson sam rockwell taika everybody we got to pick up all those names. You just dropped listen, them. Listen, 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 <laughs> though. This is important. That kid stole the microphone from Scarlett Johansson. Like, that's why you need to say that. Like, he was literally, like, cutting <laughs> off Black Widow to tell his story about the robot suit. That is the kid that you want to be Kevin McAllister in 2020. It's not about the names. I just wanted to make sure everyone understood. I love that, that kid. This kid, kid focus has on no who he stole the whatever. microphone from. Like, because Scarlett like Johansson it. is in Home Alone 3. So Scarlett Johansson is in Home Alone 3. So old Mike Steelers should have been paying attention to his elders and been like, hey, give me some Home Alone acting tip. (laughs) Do you know do you know who I think kind of steals the mic in the whole movie, though, if we're going to go back to Home Alone 2? It's John Williams. And I feel like we can't we can't really sort of talk about this film and not let that go because the score for both Home Alone 1 and then I think it expands on Home Alone 2 um, is what makes the film right and columbus yes. i think uh said that when he saw the music and the, the 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 scenes paired for that first film he was like oh now i now i know what this is and this is what gives it emotional heft and uh mark don't don't slap me through zoom here but i actually for me this is probably my favorite john williams score and Joel i'm cares. aware of his other scores <laughs> young man it, it's a great score it's a great score and and it does give you the the magic of New York and Christmas at the same time. You feel like a child in New York. And so, Joel, I will appease you and say that this is probably in John Williams top 20 movies Ooh. that he's ever scored. <laughs> it, it, it might even just be top 30. All the Star Wars is all the Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park, E.T., yeah. uh, Jaws. I mean, yeah, there's yeah, just yeah. there's too many. <laughs> oh, he's just Superman. He's just too good. 
Uh, yeah, and Home Alone is his like his his uh, for me his, his the top of the heap so because there's so there's like if you think about it, there are so many themes in this movie that work. Like the two ba- the the sticky wet slash whatever bandits. Every time they appear on screen, they've got that beautiful low thing happening. Yeah. I, I'm just it's all killer no filler. That's the thing about this score. Like every element works, uh, and yeah. I don't think that can be said about those others. Go, you know, they're decent. You know, a few, a few, a few memorable wow. moments, a few, wow. a few, a few notable motifs here and there, uh, but but they got nothing on the John Williams Home Alone. <laughs> if uh, John Williams is performing at the Hollywood Bowl, then when he goes into Home Alone, that's the bathroom break. That's the that, drum solo. That's when I'm on John my Williams. chair and I'm sort of like lighter in the air, all thrown <laughs> torch takes their these days. Down. <laughs> was, was that John Williams in the orchestra scene? When they're like spo- in in the pigeon lady's oh. lair up above, I I I don't know what he looks like, so I was like, is that John? No, I don't think he has a cameo. I think Christopher Columbus has a cameo in this movie. He tries mm. to put himself in all of his movies. We talked about Williams, the other I think unsung hero, and I kind of alluded to this again is just Joe Pesci, because again, up until that point, I just thought of him as the murderous Italian guy from all the murderous Italian movies, and maybe the Super. I don't know. Is the Super after this? I love the Super. Super is quite great. Super is great, but. He's really doing it in this movie. He's another criminal, so again, not a huge stretch, but just the way that he plays his character, it's so different from the other stuff I'd seen him in, and I think it's it's kind of incredible. Both him and Daniel Stern are really giving it for what could have been just cartoons. And apparently on set, he was pretty cruel to Culkin, right? He was yeah. he, he wouldn't interact with him, and he got them... Ooh, shoveling my mic around there. He, uh, he, yeah, he wouldn't talk to Culkin. He sort of wanted to intimidate him so that Culkin felt genuinely scared, which is a little bit tragic considering other things that were happening in Culkin's life. But yeah. the set wasn't a welcoming place, but uh, it resulted in a really good performance. And uh, again, iconic moments that I think it's in the first film or the second film, but when, he's, when he grins and you see that gold tooth and it's like, yeah, yeah this guy mm-hmm. bad. This guy's bad. Yeah. He's got a gold tooth, so don't give me class warfare. He can afford a gold tooth. <laughs> Was that, is that a thing with the class warfare thing? Because I don't get it. First of all, I forget this whole thing. And again, it goes back to my suspension of disbelief. But they brought it on themselves. Their whole reason for going after him was because he took a picture of them murdering. They were on the front page of the newspaper two days ago, breaking out of prison. A photograph of them doing crime is expected. They didn't have a GPS on these dudes. Like, why did they care that he had a photograph of them doing criminal things? They literally, like, everything about them is criminal things. Like, I don't know. This is this might be one of those logic holes that I'm just going to, like, hop over gently. It's um, like, we but call, I think <laughs> we call Mariah Carey singing. Yeah, that's what Mariah Carey does. <laughs> <laughs> like literally everything. She doesn't yeah. answer a single uh, thing in a sentence. Uh, the class welfare thing, I don't, I don't know that there's, it's been a huge, but there's a bit of a discourse online about the McAllisters being super wealthy and where did they get their money? And they obviously have a huge travel budget. Um, courtesy of the uncle, I think, when we when you dig into it and uncle find out. Uncle Rob takes the line share credit for this trip. As far as the first trip goes, I'm not sure who was funding everything but this one you can all chalk up to rich uncle rob i don't know what he does i don't know who he's tied to i don't know what he's into but uncle rob is footing the bill for a home alone <laughs> i mean yeah i guess uh, and then there's this idea though. that then there's this idea that the the two wet bandits slash sticky bandits are just a couple of working class thieves trying to trying to make a living in sort of rough coats and fingerless gloves and Kevin is kind of this entitled young white rich kid who 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 beats them around for fun and I think some of that could be true but uh, you know we don't know their background is what is, is is my back is my point on that and they also tried to kill a child so they did try to kill a child also like 
I know we like the Uncle Rob line, the Tim, but doesn't Uncle, is it Frank, say your dad is paying for it? Your dad paid good money for this trip. So I thought it was the McAllister's dad. Okay, Uncle Frank has no idea what's going on most of the time. <laughs> that this guy can true. barely shower by himself, much less figure out who is footing the bill for what. Uncle Frank is the black sheep of the family. He's nice comic relief. He's actually really, the actor's really funny in this movie. Really good, but. Yeah. I am not trusting Uncle Frank with any bookkeeping, with any family secrets. I I am an Uncle Rob guy, and I've always said that. I'm an Uncle Rob guy first and foremost, and then I'm a Kevin McAllister guy, which is why this movie's great. This is Macaulay Culkin owns this movie. What yes, about Buzz? Sorry. I, I, just, I was thinking the other day that Buzz has the... Like, does anyone speak like Buzz in real life? Like, he calls him a trout sniffer. Is that a thing that Americans would call each other? Was that like no. a common insult? That is a John Hughes, <laughs> we can't use profanity in this movie okay. with children. I, I didn't know what that was when in I was a child. In the early 90s, know. we were trying to branch out of your more classic insults and trying as a generation to figure out where we stood. You didn't want to call someone a spazoid or a geek or a nerd because that was all passe. So you had to come up with some clever words or phrases to describe someone who you might have disliked. And so Trout Sniffer, I'd say family friendly, certainly gets the <laughs> message across. And especially around Christmas, nobody wants to be smelling dead fish. And so <laughs> Buzz and also, is there any way that the character of Buzz does not grow up to be a immensely successful lawyer after yeah. we saw him litigate his <laughs> yeah. way out of any trouble at or the beginning of this movie? Or a politician. That dude <laughs> yeah, That dude can lie on yes, cue semi-convincingly, which is all you kind of need today in modern day politics, I think. Um, <laughs> uh, can, How did we get here? <laughs> look, since we've talked about the warfare, I mean, and again, it was the one thing where I do agree they did up the ante in the second one was the cleverness of the traps, not just the violence of them, but just how clever they were and how elaborate they were. Um, did you have a favorite one, Mark, from this one that you're like, all right, Kevin, Kevin is the master of disaster. I like the added elements of a hole in the floor because it it's so funny to see them fall anyway. And then when you realize that they're falling and Daniel Stern hits almost like a goofy note where he's falling on that last flight because it's almost like his body's expecting to land and it doesn't. And then he goes, ah, and, and he hits the soprano. <laughs> then he crashes to the floor. And I'll give a uh, honorable mention to just proving that this is okay for kids because it's cartoony and it's not real. When he gets electrocuted and you see his skeleton is pretty great <laughs> as well. Um, I... I think the one that I like, and it, again, a kid raised by Acme and Jackass and all these other things, um, is the Joe Pesci when they like frisbee the tools at his head. It's like, boink, <laughs> boink, boink. I love that noise. I love that noise. I love the sound effect. Foley artists on this should have been nominated for an Oscar if they weren't, because that is actually some work that they're putting in to like add the extra height to these uh, to these sort of stunts. Uh, and then also basically the things that happened to Joe Pesci's head because it also got lit on fire. <laughs> and it wasn't so much that the lit on fire was a great gag. It was just the fact that he had that weird burnt crown for yes, the rest that was of the whole thing. I was like, oh, this is, that's a, that's a picture right there. I live for it. Joel, what about you? 
Well, I mentioned the bricks earlier, and that is my favorite. There's another moment as well um, with the nail gun, which is a very simple one, uh, where he's sort of opening the door and then each twist, uh, another nail uh, staple gun, whatever kind of gun of sharp implements hits him. Uh, and I think it's like, I, I think that sequence is so well directed because everything is so set up. Everything is sort of let let to run for the suspense. Um, I think it's great. I think it's, I think it's beautiful. But just side note on that house, I lived a few doors down from where that house is supposed to be. I was on 90 West 95th Street. Um, and I did the pilgrimage to try and find it. And no, it is not, it does not exist in that form at uh, 150, whatever it is. Um, I think it's 51 West 95th, and I was in 130 something. Uh, and it didn't, it doesn't exist. It was on a back lot somewhere, so that was disappointing. Um, but I do love that nail gun. So it's I like love make- Joel in typical New York fashion describing how much he loves New York as you hear an ambulance in the background. Oh yes, I'm yeah. sorry. This is I'm on the level <laughs> 19th floor, and you can still hear ambulances. Now, hey, wow. that, that's part of the charm of New York. Last thing I'll say about this movie, and one of my many reasons for it being fresh is, and I'd love for Mark Hoffmeyer to do a breakdown because this is right up his alley, is it's among the most delicious looking pizza in the history of talking pictures. I put the Mm. cheese pizza that the limo driver serves to Kevin when he's leaving Plaza Hotel and he's just enjoying the spoils before the credit card starts getting declined, and he gets the pizza from New York, full pizza, not just a slice. It mm-hmm. looks every bit as delicious as my other nominee for the greatest pizza in the history of Talking Pictures, the pizza that everyone's eating at the beginning of Ninja Turtles 2 Secret uh, of the Ooze. There's never been more delicious pie than that sequence right there. That film is in the same chapter as Home Alone 2 Lost in New York in our book, Rotten Movies We Love. So go out and purchase it. Um, the other, I just on that moment where you're talking about the pizza slice and the champagne glass, that's become a gay meme. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's kind of, there's like this, uh, there's one picture of like, uh, you know, fancy partying and it says, this is what I thought gay life would be like. And then the second picture is of Kevin McAllister with a pizza and a glass of champagne and say what gay life actually is. Not wrong. As someone who is currently home alone, but not quite lost in New York, that's gay life. That is gay life. (laughs) Joel, please please do us a favor and and just set a couple fun traps around your apartment for when your partner gets home. Just just, just, and record it for us and we can put it up as an extra on Peacock. And we just want to see you do do one paint can for us, Joel. It's the season of giving. Get the waiver. Get the waiver. It may surprise surprise you to know there aren't too many tools in my apartment. You know why that is really funny is I literally just went online today because I'm buying a skill saw. And I think that's, you know. Do not know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me, Joel, a steel saw in the hands of Kevin McAllister. He's killing dozens yeah. of folks. American psycho they, style. They ain't walking away with that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm officially old and boring. I'm looking at Home Depot for home project ideas. Listen, we're gonna, we, got a, <laughs> we got a whole project we're working on. I needed a jigsaw and a circular saw. <laughs> Listen, I'm old, okay? I'm old. I saw this movie as a child, which officially can tell you that I am old. And, you know, I didn't like it that much then, and I've not grown to love it that much now. But... It does have its moments. And I do agree that 33% is a bit harsh, but that's what critics, you know, that's what they can do. The audience score is a little bit closer to what I would say, even though that's a little bit more friendly. But that's me. I don't have hatred for Home Alone 2. I just didn't need it. There you go. I need it every every year. And all I heard was, Joel and Mark, you are correct. 
in that hospital <laughs> screed from you, Jacqueline. So I'm glad to have come on the show today. This has been fun. See, this You're convinced. Is what, Don't let her speak, it. Mark. Don't let her speak. We See? won this round. <laughs> this is what they can do. As my boss, he literally can be like, no, Jacqueline said she's wrong. Like, uh, producer Lisa, docu- can you please mute Jacqueline right now? <laughs> she's, she's lost this round, but she continues to go. She's not Whoa. conceding. This is I, not <laughs> binge battle. I can stay in my opinion, and there is no right or wrong because it's my mm. opinion, and it's Fair. not yours. Um, Listen, uh, Mark, you were in the middle, but I want to make sure you you officially tell me once and for all, how wrong are we, Matt? I am not going to get into this class warfare struggle. I'm also not going to get into the fuller class struggle, which is does he go with Pepsi like in the first film or with Coca-Cola in the second film? Either soda's fine. And I am going to say that Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, deserves to be fresh. This movie proves that occasionally, Joel, just occasionally, Rotten Tomatoes could be maybe a little wrong. It's the name of the podcast. I'm still afraid to say it around. <laughs> can I can I invoke John Mulaney to join us in spirit because he does an entire bit about how this movie is trash, and I feel He's like got a if great we plug bit, yeah. that into right now. I would win, but I'm outnumbered <laughs> by you, Christmas loving freaks. So this ain't no phone a friend. <laughs> Oh, I so want to, though. I want to phone a friend. Uh, Joel, thank you for coming on the show. Um, But before you go, we want you to give us a movie slash TV recommendation because you're the editor of Rotten Tomatoes. So you probably know some good ones. So what's up? I do know some decent ones, and I know a lot of people are watching this at the moment, but it certainly fits the romanticized Christmas New York theme, uh, Dash and Lily on uh, Netflix. Uh, It is a Christmas series. I think it's based on a young YA novel um, about a burgeoning romance happening in wintry New York in the city pre-COVID. It's delightful. There is uh, one of the characters actually works at a very good New York pizza place called Two Boots, which is one of my favorite pizza places in which all of the flavors are named after uh, famous people. Oh, how New York. Um, But it's really delightful and the pizza looks great. And oh, there are scenes set in the Strand bookshop. It's very, uh, it's like if Home Alone 2 is fantasy wish fulfillment for an eight-year-old in New York, this is fantasy wish fulfillment for a 20-year-old who just come to NYU and wants to like eat it all up. It's it's, Mm. it's Is it like a rom-com? Is it, is it, are we falling in love here? Are we, we're falling in love. We're following clues. Think of it as like all the boys I loved before or never have I ever kind of tone territory. Um, really, really just sweet and delightful and a little bit cynical and a little bit sharp. So it's not sort of the lifetime. It's not going after your lifetime hallmark thing. It's much more in the vein of say, never have I ever in terms of tone. Okay. Which is really strange for me because I actually love lifetime movies. Christmas movies. I, because, I do too. I'm just saying it's a little harder edge than that. Yeah. But yeah. But what's weird is like for not liking Home Alone, like you give me a Lifetime movie with a generic character from the 80s in a new like revamp romance and I am there. So. You love some Lacey, some Lacey Chabert. Seriously though. <laughs> Seriously some Rachel, though. Some Rachel, some Rachel Lee Cook. Yes. <laughs> yes. Give it to me. I am all about Danica it. Danica Patrick's on screen now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Love so now, it. now I'm starting to see what what, what uh, makes Jacqueline tick. So Home Alone Two is too similar to the first one, but any Lifetime movie, the same Lifetime movie by fifty different names, all starring Meredith Baxter, Bernie. Those are fine to watch. I gotcha. put that on on mute, and then I put Christmas carols on in the background, and I decorate my tree mark, and that is my version of Christmas. And you, and you don't cannot like Home Alone Two. Um, I have to correct myself. I I 
think I said Danica Patrick uh, when I met Danica McKellar because yeah, I yeah, I was gonna say she's a driver. She, yeah, she's some sort of sporting person, right? And she used to date Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, she, she's, she's recently married retired to another sporting person driver. But um, yeah, uh, Danica McKellar also from Wonder Years. See, yeah. this is why you have Joel on the show. He brings it back to Wonder Years again. And again, <laughs> when do we get the episode about Wonder Years? Is that that should be fresh? Nobody's taking down. Nobody is taking down the Wonder Years, Mark. And if we find someone, though, we will bring them on so that you okay. can set them straight. Uh, Joel, I guess, what are you working on besides keeping me busy? Uh, that's all. That's uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to torturing you. Um, well, what am I working on? We're doing so much at Rotten Tomatoes. Know, it's so exciting. Are. We not only just launched this podcast, we have a, uh, a, a new streaming channel on Peacock that you can tune into and see wonderful shows like Versus, hosted by none other than the wonderful Mark Ellis, who just schooled me on Aaron Rodgers, um, <laughs> whom I did actually know because I just had a Christmas conversation with my mother-in-law, who is very much in love with that man. So I did learn yeah. who he was. And that's so I knew I made an error. Um, so yeah, she's a Packers fan. They're a Packers family, Jacqueline. So oh, I don't seriously? know what that means, but you should meet them. Oh, um, I'll send we've them got good the swag. we've got the yeah we've got a great channel on Peacock. We've got a lot of content coming up. We've got all your Christmas needs and our holiday movie hub. Um, me, I'm heading to Australia in, in a few days. So yay, hot Christmas, uh, trapped in a hotel quarantine. So that'll be fun. I might just watch Home Alone two on a loop. I'll be trapped <laughs> in a hotel around Christmas. Aw, listen, <laughs> with, you know with, what? Uh, with COVID testing. Imagine if he had had COVID, COVID testing. I, mean, I think your family amazing. might listen to this episode. One, because you're on it. And two, I think they agree with you on this movie. So let me just say, Joel is going through it to be with his family this year. And I couldn't be bothered to drive 10 hours. So <laughs> <laughs> Joel is literally getting on a day's worth of flights and then quarantining for two weeks just so he can hug his mom. That is dedication. Meanwhile, I told my mother back in October, I'm not going anywhere. Just to, <laughs> we're going to find the equivalent of the Rockefeller Christmas tree and reunite as John Williams plays. And it's going to be beautiful. Oh, that's going to be cute. Make, make sure it's the John Williams Superman theme, Joel. Oh, Put some spice you in cut. the holiday season. <laughs> Uh, well, Mark, I think I think folks need to watch the first one before they watch the second one. But I think you can catch both of them at Fandango Now and Voodoo to rent or buy. So if you haven't by any chance seen Home Alone and the brilliance of Macaulay Culkin in it or its sequel, you can do that. Fandango and Voodoo. Check it out. Enjoy your Christmas. Yeah. Watch the matriculation. And I would say start with Uncle Buck and watch Macaulay Culkin as an even younger tyke and then go into Home Alone and then Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. What everybody knows is the opus of kids movies centered around Christmas time in New York. You can follow me at Mark Ellis Live across all social media platforms. I got a big New Year's Eve stand up show that I'm doing. It's a virtual show. You can ring in the new year with me and a bunch of my funny friends live and you can get tickets anywhere you follow me on social media. So that's that's exciting. And I will probably celebrate the new year with a cheese pizza just for me. <laughs> and uh, you can follow Joel um, at Joel Mears. Are you only on Twitter, Joel? I think you're only on Twitter, right? Yeah, I'm only on Twitter. Yeah, uh, my, my Instagram's private. No one needs to see that. <laughs> Well, how can we see pictures of you reuniting with the John Williams score? Post yeah. it on Twitter. Post yeah. it on Twitter so folks can see that Will again. Do. And of course, you can always follow me on all forms of social media at that Jacqueline. And of course, talk to us at Rotten Tomatoes. We have at Rotten Tomatoes on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook. And also, we really like hearing from you guys. I know it's Christmas time and everybody's busy. And so you're not really about the communications right now. But still, 
Email us at archieiswrong at rottentomatoes.com. Let us know about a movie that you think that we should cover, or maybe, you know, let us know what you think about the show. Always like or subscribe or rate us on wherever you're listening to this podcast. And next week, we're keeping the Christmas themes going, right, Mark? We are, and I'm not sure the name of the movie, Jacqueline, because I remember the original animated Dr. Seuss was, was How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and then you had like the Grinch with Benedict Cumberbatch. We're doing the Jim Carrey Grinch, so if that's called How the Grinch Stole Christmas, that's what we're doing. If we're doing the Grinch and Christmas, if we're doing the Who's Meet the Grinch, whatever the name of the movie is, it's Jim Carrey playing the Grinch, and we might be at odds yet again about this film. I think we will be, because I think it's brilliant. It's okay, my, well, it's my, I think it may be one of my favorite Jim Carrey performances. Just saying, you know how much I love Jim Carrey. So this is going to be an interesting episode next week that Joel can enjoy on his way to Australia. Exactly. So tune in for that next week. Um, for those of you that were mad about my take on Ace Ventura, I redeem myself. I think I think I will redeem myself in your eyes. So <laughs> tune in next week. Again, I want to thank producer Lucy, my boss, Joel Mears, editor of Rotten Tomatoes, my partner in all things, Mr. Mark Ellis. I'm Jacqueline Coley. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you all next time.